What is the pivotal role self-esteem plays in our culture? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss the key concept of self-esteem, why it is psychologically important, and what's wrong with our society in terms of its role in not helping to provide strong self-esteem for everyone. You know, we promised this episode a few months ago, and now it's here. Yeah, we changed our minds at the time, as I recall. <laughs> and now we changed them back, which is well, our problem. Well, good for us. <laughs> our guest is the one we promised, so if you're a Sheldon Solomon fan, as we are, you won't be disappointed. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Solomon. Sheldon is best known for co-developing terror management theory based on the theories of social scientist Ernest Becker concerning how humans deal with their own sense of mortality. He's professor of social psychology at Skidmore College and is the author or co-author of over a hundred articles and several books. His most recent book is The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. Here's Dr. Solomon. Welcome, Dr. Solomon. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. Great. Sheldon, when did you first read Ernest Becker, and what, what effect did that have on you? Um, I ran into uh, Ernest Becker's work quite by accident. I had been hired as a professor at Skidmore, and I, I had to teach a personality theory course, which I had no background in. And uh, so I was cavorting in a state of hysteria through the library. And uh, my eye just caught uh, his book, The Birth and Death of Meaning, which I found to be an interesting title. And I read that book and was immediately and uh, really profoundly stricken by uh, the ideas in it. And, uh, I read all of his other books, and uh, two things happened. One is, is that personally I was so discombobulated by these ideas that I took a leave of absence from teaching for a year. I worked as a cook and a construction worker and kind of wandered uh, around the country just to think about the ideas. And then when I came back to Skidmore, I got in touch with my buddies from graduate school, Jeff Greenberg at the University of Arizona and Tom Pazinski now at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And I said, these ideas are so strikingly important and interesting that I think as experimental social psychologists, we should try and test them and see if they have empirical merit. Well, what was Becker about? Well, Becker, for us, ha had two questions that he seemed to be concerned with throughout uh, his professional career that we were also engaged with as students. So one had to do with the nature and function of self-esteem. Becker was interested in understanding what William James in the late 1800s described as one of the most important human attributes. Why is it that people need to feel good about themselves? And the other is a kind of superficially unrelated question, and that's how come historically people have had such a difficult time getting along with other people uh, that are different than themselves. As you know, and uh, as all of us know, uh, if you look back at human history, even benevolently, it's been one ongoing ethnic cleansing or brutal subjugation of designated in-house inferiors. And unfortunately, this shows no signs of abating today. And so those were the two questions that we felt Becker was preoccupied with throughout his life. This show is on self-esteem. 
That's right. And a lot of people think they know what that is and would probably say they know what the self is. But why don't we back up for a minute and talk about the self? What, yeah. is, the, what is the self? I, I think that's a good idea. One of the things that I was attracted to in Becker's book, The Birth and Death of Meaning, was his excellent discussion of the self, which he talked about as a uniquely human adaptation that gives people an unprecedented degree of what he called freedom of reactivity. In simple English, Becker argued that the self is a psychological mechanism that allows us to control behavior and emotions in ways that are just unique to humankind. A psychological mechanism? Yes. Uh, it's not that there's a piece of your brain in which your self resides or that there's a particular set of physiological processes that are unique to selfhood. And yet what Becker said is, look, we are so sophisticated cognitively, which is, of course, the result of the kind of brain that we have, that we can do some things that no other creatures are able to. For example, one of the things that Becker talks about is the uniquely human ability to reflect on the past and to extrapolate into the future. We can think about what it might have been like to be back with the dinosaurs or what the world might be like 3,000 years from now. And for Becker, that's important because it gives us, especially in situations where in novel or uncertain situations, we can step back and consider what our options are, even to the point of imagining things that don't even yet exist, and then having the audacity to transform those dreams into reality. And very obviously, that's a handy way to keep yourself alive. So in other words, the self is, it's a construct. We imagine this, and we make it a reality for ourselves. Oh, I think in a sense that's absolutely correct. There's at the very least a great deal of malleability. Uh, the self does not by any means allow us to transcend the normal confines of physical reality, but it does give us a degree of latitude that has simply not been seen yet in the natural world. This series is about social science. What's happened in the last hundred years? What advances have there been? in social science that re relate to what we're talking about sure. here? Sure. Well, of course, there'll be as many answers to that question, perhaps, as there are social scientists. But I think Becker's answer to that question, and one that we adhere to, and so do other fine thinkers these days, is a notion that the self is a what is called in psychological parlance a biosocial psychological construction. And that seems like a long-winded, turgid academic term which it indeed is. But if we forgive that for a moment, I think there's two important points about that. One notion is just that if we want to understand uh, selfhood, we need to rely on the biological underpinnings of the self, the sociological underpinnings of the self, as well as psychological considerations. And that you can't understand who and what each of us are without recourse to each of those factors. What I also like is this idea of construction. As the term implies, the self is something that unusually we don't enter the world with per se, but rather it emerges over time in the context of a rather complex interaction between ourselves and the world around us. So how does it emerge? Does it emerge from the inside out or from the outside in? Ah, good question. I, I would say it happens both ways, Steve. I think 
there's a certain sense in which at the outset of one's life, genetically acquired characteristics establish the boundaries, both limitations as well as opportunities of the kind of self that you might become. I always kid my students when I say, how many of you look like your parents? And everyone's like, oh, God, yeah, I just realized that. And of course, that's, as you know, because of genetics, none of us choose the kind of body that we're in or our gender, for that matter. I'll never be a great candidate for biological motherhood. Stevie Wonder's never going to be a great diamond cutter or air traffic controller. And so there, the biological factors uh, um, really form the boundaries of what we can become, although they provide opportunities also. If you're born with perfect pitch, you can be a better musician than if you're born without it. And so in that sense, I think the self is formed inside out. And as a father, having been in <laughs> and having seen <laughs> folks pop into the world, I can tell you that they all have different personalities the minute they hit the air. Uh, absolutely. In fact, that was the, as soon as I had kids, uh, I realized that behaviorism has very little to say about many aspects of human affairs and that temperamental factors uh, do influence the way that we are. Having said that, though, I think it's important to note that there's another absolutely critical aspect of selfhood that goes the opposite direction, or as you put it, from the outside in. And the reason for that, and it was Darwin who first noticed this, is that human beings are, are born in a profoundly immature state relative to all other creatures. Yeah, those of us that have had fish will remember that baby guppies get born and they, they just, just swim away. away. Never even see yeah, mom or dad. Yeah, puppies, kittens, six weeks, gone. Out of here. And um, yeah, as the, those of us who have had kids know that the human infant at birth is just absolutely incapable of doing anything. Uh, for, at 22, they're incapable yeah, that's of That's right. A lot six too. or yeah. seven yeah. years <laughs> for the average human, 30 or 40 for the average American. <laughs> uh, but what Darwin noted, and what I always kid around with my students about, is that literally when you're first born, you don't even know that you're here. Uh, I always ask the students in my classes, who knows that they're here now? And I say, it's not a trick question. And on a good day, I can get 75% to admit yeah, that up. they know that they're here. And then I say, well, look, who knows, who remembers day one? And no one. You know, year one, very few, the occasional rain man like savant, but generally, most people have no awareness whatsoever of their own existence until about two years of age. And for Becker, drawing on sociologists Mead and Cooley, this has profound consequences for the nature of selfhood. Because what these folks point out is that you're here and you don't know it, but you do know that other people are here. And so the argument is, is that you come to know yourself in part as a reflection of how other people treat you. The sociologists call this the looking glass self. And therefore, by the time you do know who you are, a substantial proportion of your self-concept has been unconsciously adopted from your social surroundings, but you have no idea whatsoever that that's taken place. And I know that that's a really obtuse idea, so that the best example I can give you to illustrate that is just your name. It's another great one in classes because I'll say, who has a name? And then I do even better than 75% at Skidmore. Everyone's got a name and everyone, not surprisingly, feels an intimate personal connection to their name. There's even a 
thing in social psychology called the cocktail party phenomenon. You can be in a crowded room and 50 people are talking and you don't hear anything. But then all of a sudden somebody says your name and it's like uh, an arrow shooting through your skull. You hear that clearly, you usually slither over like a reptile, uh, try and hear what they're saying about you. But the point is, is that your name is so intimately familiar that it's tempting to think that it has something intrinsically to do with you. And yet, if you think about it for a moment, your name really has nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's just an arbitrary, linguistic, symbolic affectation foisted upon you by your malicious parents so that they can have something to refer to you by. And so my folks chose the name Sheldon, which I certainly would not have selected for myself. And yet, there's a certain Sheldonosity to me that just seems to fit. And I think this is... Uh, Really quite an important point, this idea that the self is at least in part socially constructed. And go ahead, Ken. Uh, in one of your previous lectures that I've heard you talk about, you uh, said that the human body physically needs food to exist and that the self needs self-esteem, like it's food for the self. Can you say a little bit about what that means. Yeah, I like that. I didn't remember having said that. I remember so you that. guys you remind me of that. So that's really good. Where'd but you it, get that? it does so sound it pretty good. I like that analogy as a crude metaphor. Uh, everyone knows that to sustain our bodies physically, we need to be adequately nourished vis-a-vis -vis the ingestion of food that we can convert into calories. And one of the things that I like to argue is that the self also requires sustenance. And that self-esteem is, psychologically speaking, the fuel that is necessary to sustain the integrity of the self. How do we acquire self-esteem? Ah, another good question. We acquire self-esteem in different ways uh, at different times in our lives. And that's why I think it was important that we spoke a moment ago about how when you're little, you get some of your self-concept from the, your surrounding social environment. Because, and you don't need a degree in psychology to know this, when you're a little baby, kids generally derive self-esteem from their parents. And in fact, psychologists, who are always the last people to come up with good ideas, uh, know that this is true. Because research has demonstrated that till about oh five or six years of age, let's say, the best way to determine a child's self-esteem is to ask the child the extent to which they perceive their parents love and accept them. Of course, you don't ask the question that way to a five or six-year-old. But the point is, is that very early on in one's life, we get self-esteem through parental approval. And as all parents know, and even kids, if you think about it, by the time we go to grade school, the locus of self-esteem shifts somewhat, or rather the locus of where we get it, a little bit away from the parents. They don't become irrelevant. That happens in American households around high school or so. But in most kids, you start school and your teachers become the basis upon which you feel good about yourself or not. And right about the same time, and then increasingly so through adolescence, it's how your peers feel about you. But one thing that's important to note about all this is that self-esteem is something that each of us needs for ourselves as individuals. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that people with high self-esteem are not only psychologically better adjusted and happier, that's not surprising, they're also physically healthier. Uh, but the point is, is that self-esteem is something that you need for yourself, 
But notice that throughout the early part of your life, you don't get it by yourself. You actually get it by satisfying the demands of others, either their direct demands or your perception of what it is that they expect of you. And that really goes on, at least in American culture, until about the middle or end of adolescence, until you run into what Eric Erickson called an identity crisis. What, what is an identity crisis? When does it occur usually? Okay. Well, according to Erickson, and I like his ideas a, a great deal, every one of us, whether we're aware of it or not, at some point in our lives, comes to a psychological fork in the road. It, it happens at different times in different cultures. But in the United States, I would say it happens most often in the transition between high school and college. And I think that's because for the average American, that's the first time that young people are in a position to be able to differentiate between what it is that they are and what it is that other people expect them to be. And what Erickson said is that each one of us, whether we're aware of it or not, makes a choice. And even not choosing is, in fact, a de facto choice. And Erickson basically says there's one of two directions that we might go in. One of them is unfortunate in his mind, and that's to continue the understandable but ultimately undesirable tendency to measure yourself entirely in terms of somebody else's standards. And I, you guys are about my age, and so you might remember, uh, well, I'm yeah, about all right, yeah, he's a youngster. you guys. Let's keep that clear. <laughs> we have this thing about age. Well, I have a thing about hair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have the least amount of it up here, but I'm a full 10 years younger there than either you of you. Age is, age is just a question of who's going to die first, yeah. right? Okay. I'm in no rush on that. Right. No, me neither. <laughs> nope. All right, but old-timers will remember Carlos Castaneda. You remember the Castaneda yes, books? Sure. And I love, there's one of, the, uh, one of my favorite lines from Don Juan, the, the sorcerer, is the average person seeks approval in the eyes of others and calls that self-confidence. And I think that's what Erickson is referring to when he talks about the tendency on the part of some individuals to just define themselves by other people's standards. But what Erickson says is it doesn't have to be that way. That, in fact, others of us can actively use our maturing intellectual and emotional faculties to consciously decide who it is that we'd like to be, what values we would like to personally adhere to, and in so doing, begin to acquire self-esteem by virtue of our own intrinsic pursuits. And now for Erickson, that's, that distinction becomes really important because what he says, and there's a lot of folks that make this distinction. Eric Fromm, for example, makes a distinction between what he calls a, a pseudo person versus a real person. The existentialists talk about authentic versus inauthentic living. But what Erickson and, and Becker and others point out is that if you go the way of beating to the march of somebody else's drummer, to twist a, a crude phrase, it's extremely unfortunate. For one thing, uh, you never get to enjoy the ultimate human prerogative, which is to participate in the construction of oneself. I like the way Henry Miller, one of my favorite writers, puts it when he says that the self should be a work of art, an ongoing work in progress. And if you never get to do that, 
if you never really have an identity, these folks say, then the only way you feel good about yourself is by proclaiming yourself to be superior to others. And so one unfortunate consequence of this so-called inauthentic life is that you tend to derive self-esteem for yourself by declaring yourself better than other human beings. So you get self-esteem from things like a McMansion or, sure. a, or a big car or that, a show wife when you hit a certain point. You trade your old wife in for a trophy wife. Uh, absolutely. I've got a Lexus and that other Porsche is driving the Hyundai. And so, yes, you tend to measure yourself in terms of what you have and how many people you're better than. And another unfortunate consequence of moving in that direction, psychologically speaking, is that because you're so dependent on other people's opinions of you, you tend to be highly conforming. And it tends to be those kinds of individuals that make ugly kinds of social phenomena possible. Everyone knows that Hitler's a monster. Everyone knows that Saddam Hussein may not be one of the world's uh, nicest humans, but you can't have a Hitler without a docile and conforming population. And ditto for uh, every hideous person on the planet. And so that's another problem is that these kind of folks tend to be excessively conforming. And it's very difficult to be creative when you're obsessively preoccupied with being the same as everyone around you. So if we go to the flip side of things and look at this so-called authentic life, people that derive self-esteem from their own standards of meaning and value, what you find is that these folks are, are much happier, they're much more tolerant of other individuals, and because they accept themselves as they are, and not the world as it currently is, they're able to be creative. Because if you think about it for a moment, creativity by definition, to borrow a phrase from Nancy Reagan, requires that you just say no to reality. If you're happy with the world as it is, then you'll not be inclined to change it. And so the essence of creativity, at least in my mind, requires a very secure sense of oneself in the most positive way. We don't seem to see much of that in American culture today. There seems to be a great push towards the other type where people are being told what to do and what to have and possess in order to uh, get self-esteem the way I understand that you're describing it. Yes. But we really need to talk a little bit about heroism because okay. that's, a, that's a central theme of of Ernest Becker's as well. Heroism and self-esteem? Yeah, we should do that. And then we can talk briefly about why uh, we're in an odd moment in American history. Okay. Uh, heroism for Becker, which is a term he borrows from William James, I think is just his very lovely way of talking about the uniquely human need for self-regard. Becker just says that each one of us in our heart of hearts wants to believe that we are uniquely valuable people in a world of meaning. And we all want to be heroes. That doesn't mean winning a Nobel Prize or an Olympic gold medal. You can be a hero by delivering the morning newspaper on time or by being an effective health care provider or teacher. But according to Becker's way of thinking about things, we all want to feel heroic, which is functionally equivalent to having self-esteem. Right, but that gets us to the question of why it is that it seems to be so tough right now 
in American culture. Exactly. And what's, what's wrong with with America that we have so many depressed people yeah. so many, and so much unprecedented wealth and, and technology and everything well, that you think? It's certainly ironic. On the one hand, and uh, Herbert Marcuse, one of my favorite thinkers, pointed this out. Physically, we've never been in better shape. We have the technology and material resources to provide amply for everyone. And yet, psychologically speaking, we're in a very tenuous moment. My argument is that that's because the things that we teach our citizens to value and that they get self-esteem from are not realistically attainable for the average individual. So if you think about it for a moment, to, to be uh, valued as an American, if you're a guy, you have to have a fat wad of money. And if you're a woman, you have to be thinner than a piece of linguine and perpetually young. And very few of us can be really wealthy, and very few women can be thinner than pieces of linguine. And even those that can, can't stay that way forever. And so rather tragically, American values are not realistically attainable to the average American. And it's not surprising, therefore, that a third uh, of our population are depressed, another third are either drug or alcohol addicted, and the other third are shopping. This is one of those conversations you just don't want to end, but our guest has been Dr. Sheldon Solomon, professor of social psychology, Skidmore College. Sheldon, thank you for a wonderful discussion. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to an interview with Sheldon Solomon, talking about self-esteem, Ernest Becker, and terror management theory. So what did you think? Well, Steve, I think this episode gets right to the heart of many of the ills plaguing our society today. For all we've been saying about death anxiety in previous programs, Research shows that there is one shield against death anxiety, no matter what the cause. Self-esteem. Self-esteem. People who have healthy self-esteem are not as vulnerable to many of the pitfalls that death anxiety presents for most of us. Studying self-esteem is important for understanding all of what we've been talking about. Right. Sheldon's talking about one of Ernest Becker's first books, The Birth and Death of Meaning which I know is one of your favorites, right? Indeed it is. Sheldon's too. Yeah, and he starts by discussing where our self-esteem comes from or how it's first formed. That's right. I like his description of what he calls the looking-glass self, which he says stems from when we're between birth and maybe two years of age. In this period, we don't even know that we're here in the way that we do later, and we just have a general sense of good and bad, which comes almost entirely from our parents or our caregivers. And my wife and I are experiencing this as we watch our granddaughter, who is just two years old. Wow. As she develops, and she's, she's now, she's so much fun, but now she has this sense of herself mm -hmm. and others. It's really, it's, uh, it's, it's textbook. Wow. Of course, her father's a child psychologist, so that doesn't I mean, hurt. Who, who, who knows how she's going to grow up, but I think she's turning out great. So anyway, the self is at least partially constructed from the outside in. We established that. And Sheldon says it's socially constructed. It happens, quote, to us. It's outside our awareness and control. This is all unconscious, and we really need to focus on that sometimes, that we're dealing here with unconscious processes. Right. And I love it when Sheldon 
quotes Carlos Castaneda. Did you read any of Castaneda's books? Way back in high school, and uh, I loved it, and I should read him again. Oh, yeah. It's phenomenal. He's quoting Don Juan, who might be real or might be a fictional character. Nobody knows for sure. Don Juan says, the average person seeks approval in the eyes of others and calls that self-confidence. Right. And then Sheldon goes on to say, it doesn't have to be that way. We can decide who or what we'd like to be, what values we'd like to personally adhere to. That's a tall order, but valuable. It's true. He also says, people that derive self-esteem from their own standards, meaning, and value are much happier. Right. I like when he reshapes the word hero. He's like, you don't have to go to the moon or save a life or become president of the United States to be a hero. He says, you can be a hero by delivering the morning newspaper on time or by being an effective health care provider or a teacher. You know, the coronavirus pandemic brings out the best and worst in us. I heard about a healthcare worker getting onto a bus or subway wearing their hospital ID, and the crowd burst into spontaneous applause. The healthcare providers, the nurses, EMS workers, and people who clean the surfaces that other people touch, those are the true heroes today in our society. I don't want to pick on hedge fund managers, Steve, but I can't imagine one getting a standing ovation from a crowd of strangers. Can you? Not really. My thoughts flashed ahead to how most Americans get our self-esteem now, even in adulthood. Hold on. We've skipped ahead. Okay. We'll come to that. I just want to f slip in that Sheldon also mentioned an identity crisis that we nearly all go through. He says that in America, this happens most often during the transition from high school into college. That's the first time most kids are away from their parents and free to begin experimenting on their own in determining who they want to become. I remember that year distinctly in my life. And I, I remember actually thinking that that was the most important part of what was happening to me. I mean, the, the classes seemed entirely secondary to what was going on, interacting with kids from other families, other ways of life in the dormitory. I thought that was the most important part of college. It's like a fork in the road, Sheldon called it, by which I assume he meant that there's more than one way to go. The obvious side of the fork is to choose to continue on the same path that our parents started us out on. And is that what you did, Ken? Uh, no. That's not what I did, Steve. <laughs> as, as, you, Some, as you well somehow, know. Somehow I knew the end. As you well know, this is my story. Yeah. I had been eager since high school to take what Robert Frost and later M. Scott Peck called the road less traveled. And you know, I was as I was listening to Sheldon talking about all this, I realized that I had to have had some healthy self-esteem just to have the audacity to attempt that. It takes courage to go against one's parents' wishes. Yep, courage, or maybe being naive in some cases. Yeah, naive in my case, certainly. What about you, Steve? What Sheldon is describing is so right on. I went through this when I was a senior in high school on my way to college, and I've only recently come to understand what I went through back then. It's hard, especially when you're young and you don't understand what's happening. That's true. To get back to Sheldon's point, self-esteem enables us to be creative and to make many choices that seem different and risky to other people. But those risky, different decisions are often the only road to what the existentialists called an authentic life. 
Right. And that, as it turns out, is precisely what a healthy society needs to stay healthy and also to grow. And unfortunately, not how things seem to be in America right now. No, indeed. Not remotely how things are in America right now. So let's talk about the difference between self-esteem and self-entitlement, because I think there's a lot yes, of confusion. I, that's, a good, I, that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, so in psychology, the term self-esteem is used to describe a person's overall sense of self-worth or personal value. And again, this is unconscious. It could be conscious. Yep. In other words, how much you appreciate and like yourself. And in terror management theory terms, self-esteem is a primary defense against death anxiety. I think that's really important to remember that fact about this entire episode. That's probably the most important takeaway from it. Right. When I hear the, when I hear, uh, the second term, self-entitlement, as soon as most people hear the word entitlement, they think of narcissism because entitlement is a cornerstone of that particular personality disorder. And entitlement is when people perceive themselves as deserving of unearned privileges or people who believe that life owes them something, a reward or a measure of success, a particular standard of living. Steve, you found a 1934 Disney cartoon that mocked this notion with a song, The World Owes Me a Living. Oh, I loved it. About a grasshopper who never worked and then perished and the ants who worked hard and survived. Boy, that's a, an American trope if ever there was one. Yeah, and Disney brings it back. They brought it back in the Mickey Mouse Club in the, I guess that was the 50s, 60s. They bring it back at Disney World. Shirley Temple sang this song once. Wow. I'm not familiar with that one, but the cricket sings, Oh, the world owes me my living. Doodle, 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 dum. <laughs> and, and the ants all go, Oh, you're so screwed when the winter comes. And he's like, Oh, no, I'm not going to be. You know, and, and, and then, of course, winter comes and he dies. That's actually, a, that's actually a really old story. And it's one they trot out in, um, I know you get tired of me talking about psychological type. But the industrious ant and the uh, come-what-may grasshopper. There you go. The ants are working away, and the grasshopper's coming. Come on and lay in the sun. Lay in the sun with me. Let's swim the day away. And, of course, when winter comes, he doesn't have anything to eat, and he shows up knocking on the door. And sure enough, they let him in because they stored extra, seeing how he was spending his summer because they knew this was going to happen. Well, they do that in a Disney cartoon, but they probably wouldn't do that in real life. This kills me. In 2007, the hosts of Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends morning program, featuring Allison Camerata, Steve Ducey, and Brian Kilmeade, and it cracks me up that Allison Camerata was one of those three, yeah. considering now she's this liberal icon on CNN. She gets around. Yeah, <laughs> that's one way to put it. She aired a state, they aired a segment using titles such as Blame Mr. Rogers, Was Mr. Rogers Wrong? And Is Mr. Rogers Ruining Kids? And they criticized Rogers as an evil, evil man. He got a too evil rating for supposedly encouraging generations of children to grow up with a sense of self entitlement. That's preposterous. Now, I don't believe Fred Rogers was encouraging self-entitlement. I think the attack on him was willfully inaccurate. Hmm. I believe he was encouraging self-esteem among children, 
with the goal of helping them to create self-actualization when they grow up. Self-actualization represents the pursuit of reaching one's full potential. It's a, it's a Maslow concept he developed in the 40s. Yep. So self-esteem is important because it heavily influences people's choices and decisions. It serves a motivational function by making it more or less likely that people will take care of themselves and explore their full potential. Sounds good to me. Yep. Once again, self-esteem, extremely an extremely important thing. But when you look at the importance of self-esteem as we see it, both to the individual and to society as a whole, you got to wonder about the disdain some elements in our country have for these ideas. Now, I'm just speculating, but maybe they're rooted in anti-communist, pro-capitalist kind of ideas. They want a workforce of ants, not crickets. Well, that's maybe true. Well, that's kind of a Marxist interpretation. Yep. Then there's the bootstrap myth, right? Yep. The notion, the notion that you're not successful in American terms if you don't feel special enough is because you didn't work hard enough. This bootstrap myth is destructive to individuals in our society, but it hangs on. Yep. Low self-esteem can be a cycle or a loop. It causes and is caused by many of the same problems like unrealistic goals or mood disorders like depression or anxiety. And it can feed off of things like triumph or despair, pride or shame. So low self-esteem can cause some of these problems and then be caused by them at the same time. So it can cause depression, but depression can then result in low self-esteem. Right. And as we've pointed out in the past, our culture does a poor job bolstering self-esteem for the majority of everyday people. In America, you need money, fame, power, and or beauty to maintain culturally provided heroism or self-esteem. And if you don't have these things, it's because you didn't work hard enough. It's a trap. We're back to the bootstrap myth. Right. But the big takeaway here is self-esteem is a primary defense against death anxiety. The avoidance of death anxiety, the way it is practiced in America at least, is a source of all kinds of social problems like bigotry, economic inequality, war, and ultimately climate chaos. I know that's kind of a stretch. I don't think it's a stretch at all. No. And those are not coincidentally all topics that we're covering here. Yep. We've been talking this time about self-esteem, and it's an important idea. Yep. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon. We are 100% listener-supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.